This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio. Hey, Sanj, have you ever wondered if some of the accepted narratives around fintech are just based on bad assumptions? As a data nerd, I wonder about that all the time. One of the first things you do as an innovator is question all assumptions and see where the data takes you. I think it's usually a better assumption to assume that existing assumptions are wrong and build from there. Well, the industry always talks about open banking like the EU is very far ahead. They have the PSD2 leading the way to standardization of API standards. Every time I hear about it, the narrative goes that the U.S. runs the risk of being left behind without adopting a similar approach. I think this might be a case where assumptions might be wrong is a valid assumption. But before we untangle it, we should introduce the show. So welcome to The Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I am Sanjeev Kalida, Editor-in-Chief, here with Rachel Morrissey, one of our content producers. And we, have ha- and we had a chance to speak to two people who have a different narrative to tell. Thank you for having us, uh, Tom Carpenter, and I am the Director of Public Affairs and Marketing at the Financial Data Exchange. Hi, I'm Don Cardinal. I'm the Managing Director of the Financial Data Exchange. So, Rachel, what might be some assumptions about data that might be good to dissect or debunk? Well, does the PSD2 and other regulatory measures in Europe really make sure that the adoption of open banking is leading to faster transformation? Or are there other ways to get there that are actually better for the U.S. ecosystem? Is it just harder to see? That's a great one to start with, Rachel. We've been following the lead-up and implementation of this in Europe for years. So the common perception is that those actions gave Europe a head start. Well, Don and Tom think that the idea that the U.S. is trailing in open banking is false. They argue that the U.S. has a market-led strategy that is actually more flexible and will allow innovation to develop faster. We need an API standard that we can all build and work to. And and that's really the beauty of an industry-led standard, say, versus a government standard, is that the sky's the limit uh, in terms of what we're able to do and the breadth and depth. Oftentimes, when you have a regulatory standard, you build the spec. Uh, there's there's not a lot of, uh, there's, no, there's no benefit to kind of build out beyond that. And so the industry-led really matches the level of innovation and how wide and how far uh, consumer data sharing has has come just in a a very short amount of time. So we all agree that we need a standard and common legal, technical, and business structures to enable an efficient exchange of data. I think a lot of the initial drive for this was to put consumers in control or at least more aware of their data. And also this would help them access services at better rates, or at least in theory. Yep. In general, Europeans have been further ahead in terms of consumer advocacy. It's always good to keep track of these types of initiatives. I remember when I was launching a prepaid card back in the early 2000s, I closely followed the regulatory initiatives in states like California and Massachusetts, which in the U.S. were at the forefront of consumer advocacy. Right. It's always such a balance of the entire ecosystem. I mean, I spent many years in Washington, D.C. trying to navigate political and regulatory mazes. And there's a lot of power there, yet there's a lot of limitations. Exactly. I remember one of the panels from the recent MoneyFest where European regulators talked about how the U.S. was ahead in terms of use cases and actual potential consumer user experiences with their data. 
The analogy I think of here is that PSD2 built a great engine, but that businesses in the U.S. have been experimenting more with how to put these engines into cars. Oh, I like that analogy. Because the strength of something led from a regulatory standpoint is that it forces common standards. And if that isn't there, using the data would be too painful. But actually, Don talked about common standards. There's a need in the industry for common standards. And we've seen the industry come together to solve other common issues. Um, right now, over 100 million people in North America have shared their IDs and passwords to their banks, brokerage, insurance, and other firms with third parties in order to have access to very innovative and useful uh, tools. In today's day and age, that's probably not considered best practice by anyone. And so in order to migrate to newer, better practices, which is passwordless connectivity, what we call tokenized access, and provide that data in a structured format, you need all the parties to come together and agree on simple things like field one is balanced and it's 16 characters and that sort of thing. And so FDX is that big tent that solves that issue. So FDX is a trade association, and they are leading a coalition of banks and fintechs to create an industry-based standard. They're nonprofit. Every member gets an equal vote, whatever their size, which is actually very democratic. And the coalition has five principles they adhere to as they debate and decide on the standards. Our five principles of consumer data sharing really get at this exact point. Uh, control, access, um, traceability. Uh, security and transparency. Uh, we are; those are really the goals and the principles that bound everything that FDX does, which is to put the consumer in the middle of and controlling their own data, and to be more aware of who they're sharing their data with, for what purpose, for how long. Um, and we think that that ultimately is is what is empowering consumers. It's just more awareness of how. Uh, their data can be used to their benefit, and when they do use it, where it's going and who has it. Just remember cats, control, <laughs> access, transparency, traceability, and of course, security, which underlies everything. Rachel, I think you've just hit upon another assumption, which is that you need a regulatory initiative to make something broadly accepted and used. But FDX clearly is not. That brings up challenges, but also opportunities. Exactly. I mean, the vulnerability of that approach is that they can't force adoption. They have to coax or encourage adoption. So far, they have banks and fintechs serving over 12 million customers. That only leaves about 90 million to go. However, the regulatory approach in the U.S. may not be feasible. The U.S. has 14,000 banks and a host of fintechs. The path to a regulatory solution is so complex that it could break as much as it fixes. We've heard this story before. The federated regulatory model pushes a lot of things to the state level, and a very few things make it to the national level, usually only after they've reached a large scale. Will this continue on the same path, or do you think it, this time it'll be different? I think it will continue. I mean, first, on the federal level, they're looking for more competition in the financial services marketplace, not less. I do think that we are going to see a market condense a lot through mergers and acquisitions in the next few years. But still, there's a sense that it's too cumbersome to regulate smaller organizations at the national level, that it will preference the larger organizations, and so it's just best if they don't. Regardless of whether you are big or small, and whether an initiative is market-led or regulatory-led, having common standards can jumpstart the value proposition and dramatically accelerate acceptance. Don talked about that. 
highly standard pipes of data that are user permissioned are going to facilitate innovation in a variety of ways. They're going to speed consumer onboarding and know your customer decisions. Um, now, I'll give you another example. If I'm a mortgage lender, right now, I may have to get a, a bank statement or a brokerage statement faxed or scanned and emailed in. Um, both then have to be rekeyed, or I have reader software that try to read that. And there's always errors with that. There's always concerns with that. Um, there's always delays with that. And then we saw in 2000, 2008 and 2009, uh, unfortunately, sometimes people fudge those numbers. You have chain of custody issues. Well, if you're a credit grantor and you can get real-time data directly from an authoritative source, machine adjustables, there's no what we call OCR rekey issues. Wow, better, faster data, more authoritatively for free. That's going to benefit everybody. The mortgage example is really a great concrete example. Going back to the automobile analogy, a mortgage is like a van or a truck, whereas something like a credit card or retail financing is a sports car or a commuting vehicle. A mortgage is a huge volume that moves less frequently, while a credit card happens more often and needs to be faster and more efficient. Let me push the accelerator on your engine metaphor. Engines, or data distribution technologies and APIs, have been around for a while. They need to be able to be used in many different use cases for many different types of customers. Is it even possible to have a common engine for that? I mean, Don talked through some of the product decisions when designing the engine or APIs from a global perspective. The current best practice for APIs are REST. Pretty much that's the current common thinking. Everyone is using APIs for that. But even then, REST has to do with, if you look at the RESTful state, it, it doesn't necessarily specify a tech stack, just a behavior. And I think you'll find that, for example, our security guidelines are built on the NIST cybersecurity framework. NIST doesn't say, oh, you, thou shalt do this exact thing. Now, they may deprecate some older tech, but they never really say, you know, they lock themselves in. Um, they just really specify outcomes, thematic, risk-based. Um, if you look at, you know, our authentication stack, we are tokenized, tokenized access away from IDs and passwords using OAuth 2, or more specifically, the OpenID Connect extension on that, which is pretty ubiquitous around the world if you look at other groups. And that's been codified in a standard known as FAPI, part of the OpenID Foundation. We have a very strong relationship with OpenID. We, are, we help contribute to FAPI 1 and FAPI 2, and it's the really the connectivity and authentication stack or thema that we use uh, in um, FDX, and we'll continue to do so. We see it used in the UK, Australia, probably in Japan, uh, Mexico is looking at it, Brazil. So uh, that's the other nice thing is when you shop the planet for best-in-class stack. Um, and these are, I think, have a lot of legs to them. I, I think we'll be using something similar to them. They'll be different in the, in the fine details, as you're well aware. But I think we'll be on the same thematic or same generation of them uh, years down the road, just like USB-C. Doesn't look anything like USB-1, but they're still in that same family tree, you know? I think the global shopping for tech stacks is an interesting point to bring out. Another common assumption about data APIs is that it needs to be monolithic. I think the point about looking across markets shows that diversity in technology, at least in the early stages, can lead to better solutions and thus greater adoption. And that hits another common assumption that having to share the data will not be as beneficial for banks as it is for fintechs. But allowing customers to share data can actually deepen financial relationships. We often think that this is just about banking, 
But this stretches across all financial services and banks that provide their customers that safety and personalization can foster greater loyalty. Deep relationships used to mean that you were the source of all the customer's financial products. But now your relationship with them depends on how flexible and available your services can be. What's in it for me you know, for fintechs uh, is different than for banks. You know, Banks have all these credentials of their clients, typically 10 to 20% of their clients, depending on the FI. And it's been kind of a Moore's law, whether you're a big bank or a small mom and pop credit union, typically that that relative percentage of your online base has shared their credentials with one or more apps. So by getting those IDs and passwords from out of the ecosystem and, and only used by your consumer, and getting that automated traffic off your front door improves your cyber posture and your privacy posture. Um, having the API outbound, again, also gives you an idea of I mean, what data elements are in play. So I think that's important from a privacy standpoint. So we're improving your postures there, your operational postures. Um, you need a whole lot less hardware to support an API than you do keep building web servers and app servers for screen scraping. So overall, we hope to bend down these data sources cost curves so that you won't have to keep uh, buying uh, server capacity. So I think those are two of the big whiffums uh, for the FI side. There are a few others, but I think operationally, those are two big ones. Yeah, and I'll just add uh, on a very elemental level, I think really what this has come down to in the last uh, several years, this drastic innovation um, with third-party fintechs uh, coming into play is, is really a, uh, it's a competitive issue. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a small credit union or a small community bank, um, your customers now demand access to fintech apps just like everybody else. And so... We have a lot of small players that see this as, hey, yeah, this is this is the world of, of banking and finance now. This is where consumer demand is coming from. Now, let me jump back 25 years ago when I was a chip designer at Intel. At Intel, I had the pleasure of meeting Gordon Moore, who is a bedrock of the entire tech industry. And he was such a nice down-to-earth person, by the way. During the early days, Gordon saw that the number of transistors that fit on the same space of silicon doubled every 18 months. Also, very importantly, he saw that the cost halved in that same time as well, so that hardware and software designers could design for the future, not just for today. Jumping back to present day, Don is using it to illustrate that your customers sharing data to outside fintechs doubles every year. Now, let's jump ahead, you know, five or 10 years. What are the implications for privacy? How will customers react to their data being shared? And depending on how positive or negative it is, it can accelerate or decelerate data sharing trends. Sanj, I love doing this with you because you always know somebody in the history of this industry. So besides being customer-centric, which we talk about ad nauseum, it's that they are the center of this approach. There was a study recently done by Plaid called the FinTech Effect, and we are going to discuss it in a future episode. But in the study, it is clear that the adoption of one fintech app often leads to seeking other financial services through another app. For example, if your initial experience with Venmo payments was positive, then you're more likely to investigate other apps that help you with financial planning, investing, or other services. And that really stuck with me after we spoke with Don about understanding APIs as a future channel, just like digital. So I'll, I'll leave you one uh finding from you know almost a quarter century in financial services, most of it in digital, in that if you remember when online rolled out, everyone thought it was a product, it became a channel. 
And then mobile was going to be an add-on product, and it became a channel. APIs are going to become the next new big channel, uh, not just for fintech apps, but other partners and relationships and being able to standardize that so we can lower the barriers to entry, build in best-in-class, world-class security are vitally important. But it will become the next new big channel, and those that are innovative are going to jump on it early and help steer the ship. Other folks are content to ride along, and that's fine, too. The notion of APIs being a channel is very interesting. Right now, Ticketmaster is creating an API that allows regional health authorities to clear ticket buyers for event attendance. And it will be embedded into their app like payments. In my humble opinion, this is the most important part of the whole interview and podcast. Thinking about APIs as a channel as opposed to a connectivity technology, is truly a paradigm shift. You know, let's, let's just jump back 15 years during the early stages of smartphones. Till that point, phones were a connectivity technology. They enabled two or more individuals to connect via a global routing circuit, which enabled conversations. The conversations aren't as good as real life, but they connected people who weren't physically next to each other. Then smartphones started to add layers like additional data services on top of phones. Initially, these deals were one-off between software services and companies like Nokia and Ericsson. Apple came in and created a standardized format for an easily extensible platform with the iTunes Store. Deals and technology were standardized, which freed up tech and business resources for software companies to build better apps. If, and this is a big if, If FDX is able to create a common standardized platform, this could be huge. The first step, though, is a statement that you highlighted about APIs being a channel. I'm showing my true geek colors here by being so excited by that statement, aren't I, Rachel? (laughs) Well, let that geek flag fly, Sanjeev. We love it. But if I follow what you are saying, then the API adds a completely new layer to this ecosystem. With the popularity and necessity of embedded payments on the rise, it will be ingrained throughout very soon, particularly if they can create that big if. And that is really just the beginning. That is a great point. So much energy in the industry is focused on embedded payments. This puts a lot of previously conscious decision-making by consumers into subconscious autopilot. To me, this definitely feels like a big leap forward on the march of payments progress. But as with any platform, a lot of questions need to be raised before companies can participate in it, like costs, service levels, and much more. Yeah, one advantage FDX has is that it's a nonprofit organization and their mission allows them to provide the spec for free. First of all, it doesn't cost anything to use our spec. Okay, it's royalty free. We're a not for profit with no commercial interests. You can uh, simply apply to us and say, hey, I'd like a copy of the spec. As long as we verify you're not on some sanctioned nations list, we're going to send you the YAML and the markdown language, and you're free to use it as much as you like. Now, we will be standing up a sandbox that's dedicated to us as well as a certification regime so you can show the world that, yes, I know how to code to FDX as standard. That's definitely a huge plus. Lowering the barriers to entry to participate makes so much sense. This brings me to debunking the final assumption. Rachel, would you have thought that a conversation and a podcast about financial APIs could be so much fun? (laughs) Well, data geeks like you and me, uh, 
and anyone interested in how the world is going to change in the next five to 10 years, I hope. I mean, that is why we are making this podcast. Spot on as always, Rachel. And that is it for this episode of The Money Pot. We want to thank our guests, Don Cardinal and Tom Carpenter of FDX, for sharing their time and expertise. And we want to thank our producer, Roland Boddenham. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Also, send any ideas you have for a topic or proposed guest to podcast at money2020.com. And thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.